As you can see in your bulletins, we're turning this morning to John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. I just note for you that that will be on the screen behind me, and you're welcome to follow along there. If you have a Bible, you obviously can turn there as well. If you came here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. If you find one in the seat in front of you, uh, when you leave, you're welcome to take that. We'll replace it. If there isn't one under the seat in front of you, I'll be at the door in the back after the service is done, and we'll certainly give you one. The reason I stress that is because there are two very important things that we invest heavily as a church. The first is the Scriptures. We've already sung the Scriptures. In many ways, we've prayed the Scriptures. Now we're going to read the Scriptures and explain them. We need that truth. And then we need this community of believers to help us as we walk after Christ. So from John chapter 13, beginning at verse 21, hear the Word of God. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what, are you going to, what, what, are, what, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of our God. May he bless it this morning. As you heard in one of the announcements before the service began, when our worship service is finished here this morning, I'm starting as part of Sunday School, a five-part series on church membership. It's not just for those who are not yet members. In fact, you may have been a member of our church for a very long time, and I'd encourage you to come as well. And here's why I think it would be beneficial for you, even if you've been a member here. It is because of the questions that we're going to think about in this Sunday school class. For example, this morning at about 11 o'clock or so, we're going to consider the question, why should I be a member of Redeemer Church? Why should I do that? There is a much fuller answer I'm going to give, Lord willing, in Sunday school this morning. But here at about 10.09, during the worship service, we have read a portion of Scripture that leads us to understand a part of what it means to be within the body of Christ. Let me explain that to you. You may be one of the many people here who have been part of another church before you came here. And the experiences have varied. Maybe it was a very good experience, and I'm thankful for that. Or maybe it was a very poor experience, and you come here with some scars. Only when I say a poor experience, you may think to yourself, that hardly seems adequate for my experience. It was beyond poor. So let me explain to you some of what my childhood was like 
in a very poor church experience. I've noted this before, but it was so formative for me as a child, I think it bears mentioning again. I remember people yelling yelling at each other after the service, calling each other names in the narthex of our church. I remember church members coming over to our house at night, vandalizing our home. I remember the pastor, my childhood pastor, after he left our congregation, eventually being arrested and then in prison for horrible things that he had done. I remember people being scattered from that church and some of them leaving the Christian faith altogether, so discouraged by what they had seen. And perhaps most striking to me as a young man was that my father, who served as an elder in that church, developed so much stress from what happened that he had shingles and suffered not only mentally and spiritually, but also physically. Now, after all of that, maybe you say, I'm discouraging you from being a member of the church, or maybe you would ask the question, well, then why would I ever want to be part of a church? if things that bad could happen as part of it. Well, last week, we had one very powerful reason why you should be a member of a church. Because Jesus, who is the head of the church, loves us to the degree that he will serve us in whatever way we need. Even in the most basic ways, Jesus is committed to serving us. And further, he is committed to developing that spirit of service in the church as a whole. That's how strong Jesus is. That's a very powerful reason to belong to a church. But that section ended with Jesus telling his disciples that someone was going to betray him. He serves his disciples, he calls them to do the same, and then the news that someone close to him was going to hand him over to the authorities, and as we know from the scriptures, he would be killed. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that in addition, in addition to what we read last week about the power of the love of Jesus Christ to care for his church, to love you, and to form a body that can do the same, this passage actually gives us a second very powerful reason to be part of his disciples. It is this. It is that our Savior knows the betrayal that can come from those who are close to him. And he works to create a people who can risk serving each other even through that betrayal. That's how great our Savior is. Now, I understand if that takes some explanation, so let me explain it to you. And there are three things I want to say about your ability to risk serving even through betrayal. The first comes in verse 21, and it's what I'm describing the revelation of the basic idea or the principle of the passage. In verse 21, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. If you have been reading through John or if you were here last week, you will know there's an obvious connection between what we're reading here and the passage that came before. They're not separate One didn't happen a year before the other. No, they're in close connection. In fact, this truly, truly I say to you is the third truly, truly that happens in quick succession. Jesus says that twice in the previous section. Now he says it again. 
The previous section also ends on the note where Jesus says, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sends me. What Jesus is saying is that there is a basic correlation between Jesus' action in that previous section where he serves his disciples by washing their feet and then calls us to serve each other in a similar way. He is saying there's a correlation between his actions and then what he is calling us to do. In fact, he goes so far to say that when people observe Jesus' disciples in action, they ought to see a loving service that makes obvious that Jesus is at work in them. That's not a difficult concept. But it begs the question why in verse 21, this section opens, this reading opens with Jesus being troubled in his spirit. (laughs) You would think after this call to loving service, Jesus would be joyful. His disciples would say, that's what we'd love to do. Instead, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. In fact, the language used here is used one other time in the Gospel of John, and that's when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, and Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Whatever's happening here is so troubling to Jesus, it's almost like death. What troubles our Savior so much? It has everything to do with the combination of the previous section and this one. As we know, Jesus is going to be betrayed. Someone very close to him is going to turn him over to the authorities who will misuse him and put him to death in order for this person, this betrayer, to receive some money. Imagine that. It is an offense beyond offenses. It is the worst sort of offense the world can know, that someone would deceive and turn over the Savior of the universe to be put to death. There is no other greater offense imaginable. And you can understand why that would trouble Jesus. Luke describes Jesus in anguish just before he is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a famous passage where it said, and he sweat like drops of blood. Tremendous anguish. You would understand why Jesus would be so troubled. But you'll notice in the Gospel of John, John does not focus on the anguish of Jesus because of his betrayal in that respect. In John's record of Jesus going to the cross, Jesus' anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane is not found. That's found in Luke, but not in John. John is not focused on Jesus being troubled for for what he is about to endure. Listen to this. Jesus is troubled about his betrayal for what it means for those who follow him. That's what is troubling Jesus. The suffering that is about to be part of of his life will soon become part of his disciples' lives. Lives. Jesus loves them with such a great love that thinking about the suffering they will endure brings him to incredible anguish. He grieves when his disciples will suffer. He knows what faces them. If you think I'm stretching this too much, it is consistent with Jesus' words in verse 16 of this chapter that we read last week. He says a servant is not above his master. Jesus repeats that again in chapter 15, verse 20. In our chapter 13, it is about service. 
As Jesus was willing to serve in the most humble of ways, we should serve as well. In chapter 15, Jesus applies that in a different context. In chapter 15, he applies that to the idea of suffering. As Jesus suffered, he said, you will as well. To put it rather simply, this section is about suffering and betrayal. It focuses on Jesus' betrayal, but in context, its application is so much wider. It is about the suffering through betrayal that we will suffer as well. Let that be a dose of reality for us this morning. As wonderful as the body of Christ is, and I believe we have a wonderful body here, unless we are above our master, Jesus, we will suffer as well. And I might point to all sorts of ways we suffer. You know these ways. Maybe it's an illness that you're suffering with. Maybe it's an estrangement for a chi- from a child. Maybe it's a sin that rips apart your own soul. There's so many ways in which we suffer from the effects of sin. But that suffering also includes what happens among Jesus' disciples. And Jesus, because... He understands not only what is happening to himself, but also what will happen to us as his disciples. It says, even those who we know, who know you well, even these will harm us deeply. That's the first thing we learn about betrayal in this passage. The second thing we learn about betrayal in this passage is the reality of who's going to do that. We find that in verses 22 through 26. This is the majority of the passage. This is where we watch the action occur. Jesus says he will be betrayed, and then we watch him show his disciples who is going to betray him. And there's really two characters in these verses that you should understand. The first is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. This is almost certainly the author of this book. You can read through the rest of John, and you'll come to that conclusion very quickly. And of course, people have wondered, why doesn't John just say, well, he spoke to John? There are various answers that are given. Perhaps there's a touch of humility to it. But there's also a much deeper reason. It is the same kind of reason that John Bunyan, that caused John Bunyan In Pilgrim's Progress, to name his characters, names like Christian or Mr. Goodhart or Evangelist or so on and so forth. The effect of doing that is to universalize the one that we're looking at. And John, the one whom Jesus loves, knows that this character, the one that Jesus loved, is not only John himself, it's all those whom Jesus loves. Or to put it this way, we are encouraged to focus less on identifying who this is and more on what he is. That is the one whom Jesus loves. Now some of you think perhaps you're belaboring that a bit, Pastor, and I am. But I'm doing that, I hope, for a good reason. I want you to see in this first character found in these verses The one whom Jesus loves is close to Jesus. He's literally reclining on him 
or to say it this way, to use the language of an older confession, here is one who is resting and relying upon Jesus physically but also spiritually. And this is the one Peter asks to then ask Jesus, who will betray you? And this is also the one that Jesus responds to. Jesus is the one who responds to the one he loves. And this one he loves is at the very center of this identity of the betrayer. Which brings us to the second character in these verses, and you won't be surprised. He's the one who sticks out the most. It is Judas Iscariot. He is the one Jesus identifies by taking a piece of bread, dipping it in the bowl, and giving it to him. Please understand what's going on in this action. Jesus says the betrayer is the one whom I dip into the bowl with. The stress is on the I. It is the me. Jesus is saying it is a meal with me. My betrayer is having a meal with me. Maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because if you go to a fast food restaurant, you're there with maybe 40 other people that you barely know. That's not what this is about in this story. In a meal like this, you wouldn't just eat with anyone. No, eating with somebody was more like sharing an apartment with a roommate. You're careful whom you select to be your roommate. It's got to be somebody you know, someone you trust, someone you identify with, someone that you are close with. It is for that reason that Jesus was heavily criticized by the Pharisees because he said they gathers, he gathers with sinners and eats with them. And you think, well, isn't that nice of Jesus to do? The Pharisees said no, because it meant Jesus identified with sinners. He was close to sinners. How could he be morally upright if he identified with them? And especially for the Jews, there would have been the subtext of the deep fellowship of the meals that were part of the ceremonial law. Jesus is stressing the closeness between himself and Judas, the one who will betray him. These two characters demonstrate a contrast. They both had access to Jesus. They both heard the same things that Jesus spoke. They watched the miracles Jesus performed. There was no difference between John and Judas. There was no difference between the one whom Jesus loved and Judas Iscariot when it came to their access to the Savior. There was, however, a significant difference, a huge difference in the way that they responded to Jesus. In fact, this account is set up so that we as readers would see that contrast very clearly. In fact, you'll notice in the story that most of the disciples had no idea why Jesus dipped that morsel and gave it to Judas Iscariot. They thought, oh, maybe Judas needs to go out and do some work, so he needs to eat. Most of them are ignorant. And yet we as readers can see what's happening here. We're given the inside picture. Why? So that we can see the contrast between the one who knows Jesus and trusts in him, who loves him and is loved by him, contrasting that with the one who is with him and knows him, but never trusts in him, never relies upon him, never rests upon him, and instead betrays him. 
That contrast, that is the second thing you should know about betrayal. Which leads to the third thing that I want to talk about briefly at the end of this passage in verses 27 through 30. It's really the root of the problem. It's not Judas alone. It's not just a problem with this particular person. It is far deeper. It's about the evil one attempting to ruin God's redemptive plan. This is the devil. As Jesus dips his piece of bread into the sauce, he gives it to Judas Iscariot. When Judas receives it, the Bible says that Satan entered into him. Jesus says, go out then. He is saying, go and do the work. The one who's at work in you, the evil one, Satan, the devil, he has been trying to destroy the work of God from the beginning. That preceded the time that Judas ever existed. Judas now is the one through whom the evil one is working. What John is doing is emphasizing that what Judas is about to do is not simply the work of a greedy man making some money by betraying a friend. It is far deeper and darker than that is the work of devil himself. I could trace out for you all the ways the devil had had tried to destroy Jesus' work up to this point in his life, all the ways he tried to destroy God's work before this in the Old and New Testaments, and all the ways he will try to do that after Jesus' life on this earth. But rather than doing that, I simply want to tell you that the evil one has been trying, did try, and will try. And that is the reason John includes it here. It is because our God wants you to see how serious this betrayal is. It is betrayal at the highest order. It is genuine evil at work. Which leads to a couple of questions. What does this leave? Where does this leave us? What does this mean for us that Jesus is betrayed? Even further, I said this betrayal is one of the ways that you compel us to be part of the church. And if you are following with me, you might say, Pastor, I do not see how that could be true. The first thing I want to note for you is that a passage like this comes with a very strong warning. It is very possible to say the right things and do the right things and act the right way and fool a lot of people around you and yet your heart be far from resting and relying upon Jesus Christ. I'm not asking if sometimes your heart is weak and you struggle with a particular sin. I'm asking about basic orientation. There was never a time that Judas Iscariot looked in Jesus and said, I want to follow him. I want to serve him. I give my life to him. No, Judas Iscariot, from the very moment he began to follow Jesus, had no love or honor for our Savior. So that this passage stands with this question. Do we rest and rely upon Jesus? If we do, there is no possibility that we would ever fall into the sin that Judas Iscariot fell into. It's not possible. If, however, this morning you're listening to this and you're saying, 
As long as I act the right way, do the right things, I can fool everyone around me. What I say to you this morning is you're not fooling. You're not fooling your God. Not at all. He knows the very heart of you. He knows what moves you, motivates you, the things that you care about the most. A passage like this stands as a great warning to you. Hear it that way. But second, I want you to see this passage within the wider perspective of what's happening in the Gospel of John. In fact, I want you to see this passage not through the lens of one betrayal, but two. The other character that comes up time and again between now and the end of the book of John is Simon Peter. In fact, if you know the way that John unfolds, you will see that Simon Peter comes to a point where he says about Jesus, I don't even know who that is. And he flees from Jesus. The story of John is not just Judas betraying Jesus, but Simon Peter also betrays Jesus. He will not acknowledge him when there's a threat that he might be harmed. He flees from Jesus. It is not simply that Judas Iscariot is held up as the example of one who will not acknowledge Jesus. Simon Peter is as well. We'll return to that theme as we move through the rest of these chapters of John, but I introduce it to you now for this reason. Because the point of this section is not to say if you've ever done anything sinful, if you've ever dishonored your Savior in some way, if you've ever been inconsistent in your testimony, if there's a secret sin that you struggle with and you're battling against it, you're in big trouble. Now, the testimony of John from this point forward is a testimony of the way in which Jesus loves Peter in the middle of his sin. To the point that at the end of John, Jesus restores Simon Peter and he calls Peter to be the rock on whose confession the church is founded. Imagine someone who disowns his Lord and the Lord turns to Peter and says, but you'll be the one upon whom this body will receive the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not that Jesus works through perfect people. It's not that he's looking for those who never make mistakes, who never even say words that offend our God. Those are not the people through whom Jesus works. No, Jesus works through those like Simon Peter. And you're called to see that contrast. And the reason I stress that contrast is because the warning that it issued about not falling into the sin of Judas Iscariot is a very stark sin. In fact, if you're listening to me and you say to yourself, oh, I struggle to follow Jesus. I'm struggling to follow him in some way. I want to follow him, but here are the things that I struggle with. That's a struggle of Simon Peter. It's not the struggle of Judas Iscariot. We read in no place up to now that Judas Iscariot struggled with that. It's almost only at the moment at which Jesus is betrayed that he realizes his mistake. Simon Peter is convicted over and over and over again. Even when Simon betrays Jesus, will not acknowledge him as a Savior, Jesus in kindness reaches out to him over and over and over again. 
And that leads me to the third thing I want to say to you this morning. And it goes back to that question I asked at the beginning of this sermon. One of the very powerful reasons that you ought to be a member of the church is because Jesus loves you and he calls you into a body where you can serve each other. Here's the second powerful reason that God calls you to be part of a church. Because our Savior Jesus not only loves you so that you may do good, he also loves you that when you fail him, he can restore you to do good. You know how comforting that is? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you're going to do that in your heart as you record the many ways that you have failed your Savior. Maybe it's not that distance, distant from your mind this morning to record that failure. Maybe it's as easy as this morning or this past week. And you read this story this morning and I say, be warned, do not do as Judas Iscariot did. And you say, oh, I fear that I have. Can I urge you, friend, to look at the kindness of Jesus in this story? Identifying the one who would betray him, but warning and is preparing his disciples for the future that they would lead. As wonderful as I believe this body is, I'm very glad to belong here. I've said before, even if I wasn't the pastor, I would love to belong to this church. I also know that within the body there are failures. I've seen some of yours, and you've seen mine, and you've seen each other's. And the joy of belonging to the church is that in the middle of those Simon Peter failures, we have a Savior who knows the difference between ultimate betrayal and those of us who are struggling. And he can use us, even in our Simon Peter hesitancies, to serve each other and to glorify his name. Does that bring you joy this morning? Praise the Lord for his goodness. Let's bow in prayer. Father, whenever, what in, in whatever way we feel inadequate this morning, whatever way we can trace our own sins, our own struggles, the places where we have failed, we give them to our Savior Jesus, the one who knows us as we are, the one who saw Simon Peter ask that question and knew what Simon would do and yet loved him. Father, you look upon us the same way. If we have no regard for you, if we're only like Judas putting on a show, bring us the deepest possible conviction this morning that we would not take comfort in simply looking and talking and acting the right way. Turn us to our Savior and cause us to rest and rely upon him as John literally did for our Savior. But then also fill us with hope, Lord. The part of the beautiful work that our Savior does is bring together people who have all sort of shortcomings and challenges and struggles. And you bring us into a body 
where we can be honest about who we are. We can have people help us as we seek to follow after our Savior. And we know that the power of the redeeming grace of Jesus means even those failures can be used by him for good. We rejoice in that, Lord. And we pray that more and more that would be the character of each one of us, but also our church as a whole. That instead of denying the difficult places in life, we would acknowledge them in the light of the kindness of our God. It is in Christ that we pray. Amen.